Hey, tonight you guys are in for a treat. Um, as you know, we started week one was What is Truth. Last week was Is Scripture Reliable? Um, this week we have Aaron Graft, um, who's been a longtime member of this church, and he's been serving on the apologetics, in the apologetics uh, ministry for a while. And uh, was really um, a guy that I um, was foundational in kind of getting the apologetics portion of the ministry together here at Watermark, and has been here a long time. He's a really good brother. But he's going to be answering the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? So kind of the problem of evil topic tonight, and then he'll be, a, he'll be back again next week to talk about is God sovereign in salvation, kind of the whole election, predestination, uh, Calvinism, Arminianism uh, debate. So, And then the week after that, uh, Dr. Bolin will be back, and he's going to do creation and science in the Genesis account, which is uh, kind of his forte, so you definitely do not want to miss that. And then I'll close this out uh, with uh, a survey of the world religions. Why is Christianity unique among, among them? So let me pray for our time tonight, and then Aaron's going to come up and... Wow, y'all with knowledge. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, thanks for tonight. Thank you for um, just your, your sovereignty in our lives. Thank you that in the midst of pain and suffering that you are moving. And uh, we just, we honor you for that. We, um, we thank you for it. And I pray that as Aaron comes that you would, would just give him clarity of thought and speech and that what is communicated would be received and internalized, that we might go and uh, be the people that you've called us to be um, in the public square. We just love you and offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Hey, it's really good to be with you all um, tonight. I'll probably start sweating. I'm a natural sweater. It's hot up here. Doesn't mean I'm worried that uh, about what I'm talking about. It's just it's just warm. But um, piggybacking off what uh, Nathan said, look, wowing you with knowledge. Um, I hope you know. I don't know what God's uh, going to do with tonight, but I do want you to understand the heart behind what we're doing here. And the heart behind the apologetics ministry. As Nathan said, I've served in that a long time at Watermark. And here's what I've seen. By a factor of 10, more people are moved to um, come experience what Jesus is doing by compassion than they ever will be by knowledge. Okay? So understand that. That we don't take ourselves too seriously. Right? The, the brother or sister in Christ who's walking com- with compassion, following the steps of Christ, uh, is the most powerful witness there is. So what our goal is, is to give, to equip you, as you go out in compassion and love others and follow Christ, to equip you to answer some questions that we see over and over and over again. Because the greatest tragedy is for someone not to do business with the reality of the Bible because they have a philosophical question like, why is there evil? And, and, to, and even worse tragedies, to misunderstand what the Bible says about it. And so our goal tonight is to very simply walk through what the Bible says about why does a good God allow evil and suffering for the purpose of equipping you to go out and be the church. And so I'm very excited about that. And uh, grateful that you have uh, that you've come to join us tonight. So, the questions we're going to talk about: Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Is God in control of evil and suffering? 
And what is God's purpose, if we presume he is in control, in allowing evil and suffering? And I love this illustration, which is borrowed from Logos, because, you know, I think if you turn these questions into a, a, metaf- a picture, a metaphor, it's, you know, if I'm a believer in Christ, why is my shield not bigger, right? I mean, that's kind of what I want to believe, that my shield would be big enough because I'm a believer that these arrows would never hit me. And of course, then the more philosophical of us would say, well, why are there arrows at all? Right? I mean, if God's in control, why, why, am I, why are there arrows being fired at me? And so that's what we want to talk about tonight. Um, and you know what? This is an incredibly relevant... Oh, now, why aren't Christians protected from suffering? Which ties into the, the, the last question. But this is an incredibly relevant cultural topic. I'll just give you one piece of information. One megachurch pastor has ignited a theological firestorm by suggesting that our response to the Christian message in this life will not necessarily determine our eternal destiny. In his book, Love Wins, Heaven, Hell and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived, Rob Bell says that ultimately all people will be saved, when though, even those who've rejected the claims of Christianity. He argues people will eventually be persuaded by God's love, post-mortem in the life to come. And Pastor Rob Bell joins us now. Good afternoon, sir. Before we come to talk about the book, just help us with this tragedy in Japan. Which of these is true? Either God is all-powerful, but he doesn't care about the people of Japan and therefore they're suffering, or he does care about the people of Japan, but he's not all-powerful. Which one is it? I begin with the belief that God, when we shed a tear, God sheds a tear. So, so I, I begin with a divine being who is profoundly empathetic, compassionate, and stands in solidarity with us. Secondly, the dominant story of the scriptures is about restoration, it's about renewal, it's about rebirth, it's about a God who insists in the midst of this chaos, the last word hasn't been spoken. And so people of faith have clung to this promise and this hope that God will essentially fix this place. And it's a beautiful hope, and I think we ought to keep it front and center, especially right now. So which of those is true? He's all-powerful and he cares, or he cares and is not all-powerful? I think that this is a paradox at the heart of the divine, and some paradoxes are best left exactly as they are. Okay. This book you've written has been stirring some controversy because the implication is, as you put it... Yeah. So the paradox of the divine. So, look, hopefully when you walk away tonight, you'll be better equipped to answer this question if you ever go on national television and get interviewed by Martin Bashir. Uh, than, than Rob did. Of course, he wasn't expecting that question, but, you know, hey, that's how the real world works, right? We're not always expecting opportunities to talk about what God, God's doing. So let's start with first, first question. Why is there evil? And as we answer that, let's talk about what the relationship is between evil, sin, and suffering. So sin, simply defined, is separation from God. And separation from God roots from a, pro- it's a product of misplaced priorities, Now, you can generally look at sin a couple different ways. There are bad things, right? Cosmic rule breaking. That basically wherever you go, in whatever time period you want to talk about, there are things that are just considered to be wrong. Rape, murder, betrayal, theft, etc. We can think of all those things. Just those things we sort of innately sense uh, are wrong. Uh, but sin also comes from quote-unquote good things, right? When we take the creation, which God created and gave us, and we elevate the creation over the creator. Well, that's materialism, 
right? And materialism in and of itself is a sin. And so whether it comes from a good thing or a bad thing, the point is, is that sin is separation from God. Evil, which is defined as extremely wicked, immoral, or harmful, according to Webster's Dictionary, ultimately is a product of sin. Now here we get to the first divergence, right? I think most worldviews, whether they call it sin or not, they, 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 they sort between good and bad, but there's a divergence in worldviews about how people look at evil, okay? And so the first one is atheism. Now, what you heard Martin Bashir ask Rob Bell was, if there's an all-powerful God who is good, how is it possible that this tragic earthquake and tsunami happened in Japan, right? Either God is all-powerful and he's not good because he allowed this to happen and hundreds of thousands of people to die, or God is good and he's not all-powerful, and, it, and so therefore he couldn't stop the tsunami in Japan, but he's good and didn't want it to happen. And so the atheist says, so you know, therefore there is no all-good, all-powerful God. There is no God in control of this world we live in. And they use evil as a way to produ- pro- prove it. So they, they affirm the reality of evil, but they deny the existence of God. A second way, second worldview uh, that looks at evil is pantheism. Pantheism is tied to Eastern mysticism, mysticism, and pantheism basically views God. There is a God, but he's not a who, he's an it, right? God is, is everything. He's you, he's me, he's the tree, he's the stone, he's the ground, he's the air, he's the water, he's all, God is everything. It's like the force from, from Star Wars, right? He's in everything, and he is the only reality, and everything that's not that is illusory, Okay? And just to distinguish here, from a Christian worldview, we do say God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere at all times. But that is not the same thing as saying he is the world. Because we view God as separate and distinct creator of the world. And so what pantheism says is that evil is illusory. It's just, it's not ultimate reality. Which is this great philosophical way of looking at evil. But the problem is, is I bet you if you had a pantheist in here, and they uh, were feeling pain, they wouldn't call it illusory, right? I, I bet you most pantheists would jump out of the way of a speeding vehicle to avoid getting run over because you can call it illusory from a philosophical context, but the fact of the matter is evil and in this world crashes through many times our perception we have of control and safety. And so Ultimately, when you go walk through pantheism, it doesn't really give a satisfactory explanation of, this, of, of why there is evil. Now, the last view is, is theism or compatibilism, and that's basically tied to a biblical worldview. And it says that we both will affirm the existence of evil and we affirm the existence of a good, all-powerful God, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. Now, we would say... That evil is no thing, right? And this is Norm Geisler's made this argument. You've heard Todd talk about it. That is different than saying evil is nothing. So let me give you an example. Evil is like rust in a car or like a moth eats a hole in a garment. Okay, it's something that's missing, something that's corrupted, right? 
Now, philosophically speaking, you cannot have a totally rusted car, right? There has to be a car that exists for rust to be in it. You can't have a totally moth-eaten garment because there wouldn't be no garment. So evil is a privation, right? It is the absence of something that should be there. It's not just the absence of something because if we talk about blindness, that's a privation of sight, right? It's the absence of sight, but rocks are blind, but we don't view that as a privation. So evil is, in, in a theistic worldview, is a, is, it's, it's a corruption or something that's missing from the way God created it, the, the perfect creation. Does that make sense? It, doesn't exi- it cannot exist apart from the good standard by which we measure. Now, suffering which is to experience or be subjected to something bad or unpleasant, is ultimately just a consequence of evil and sin. That's where it comes from. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then persecution is a specific subset of suffering, and it's on an account of a person's identity or beliefs. Race, religion. I mean, we all are familiar with persecution and how that happens, and it's happening around the world in Egypt and other places against Christians right now. But it... it has happened here in the United States for a variety of reasons people have been persecuted. So what are the root causes of suffering? Now, before we go through these, I want to point out to you, we're talking about these not so you are equipped to walk out of here, look at suffering in someone's life, and go, ah, it's category A3, right? Because what we're going to talk about tonight is causation is more complex than we often perceive. Further, that's not what Jesus did when he saw suffering, right? Let's, let's use the example of Lazarus. When Jesus went to the tomb and he saw the family weeping, what did Jesus do first? Anybody? He wept. He wept because he had compassion on the people who were suffering and sad, even though he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So just understand we're talking about this to give you context for it. But as we go out and engage the world, we're not here so that we necessarily define a specific cause of evil. And, and when we walk through it, we can, it, it should make more sense. But the first cause of suffering is the natural consequence of poor choices. I mean, this is the way God designed the world, right? Choices and consequences. You can choose what you sow, but you cannot control what you reap. Whatever choice you make leads to an outcome that will either be good or bad. Now, you can break that down further and say direct effects, right? Like if I take undue risk, that might lead to my own personal injury. And I can also have a direct negative effect on those around me, child abuse. If I were to choose, make a poor choice in how I engage with my children, I could end up causing them suffering. And there are also indirect effects, right? If I'm lazy at work and I end up losing my job, which leads to poverty, that's suffering, but it's caused by my poor choices. Indirectly, but that's still the cause. Or in the case of how it affects other people, where someone's an alcohol, you know, where alcohol or some substance abuse leads to a broken family, which leads to pain and suffering. It was not a direct effect, but an indirect effect. But the point is, there are natural consequences for poor choices, Why? Because of retribution and education. Retribution because any poor choice, any sinful choice is an offense against a holy God, and therefore there is retribution. 
but also education, right? If I put my hand on a hot stove, I will experience suffering. Why? Because God doesn't want me to do that anymore, right? That's the whole reason. Ezekiel chapter 18, where God says, the, father, the, the soul of the Father is mine and the soul of the Son is mine. He who sins is the one he will, who will die. And what he's doing is dealing with this whole issue that the, is, the Jewish people were having, blaming their problems on what their forefathers had done. And he said, stop doing that. Understand your choices lead to consequences. Another cause of suffering is a supernatural act of divine punishment or spiritual warfare. We see that in multiple ways, natural phenomena. Exodus chapter 7, verse, Exodus 7, chapter 7 through 12. That's where God uses natural phenomena to send the ten plagues in Egypt, which caused an immense amount of suffering for the Egyptian people. We see God use people as oppressors. In Isaiah chapter 45, he talks about his instrument, Cyrus. And the most, probably the most, um, in, in 2 Kings chapter 17, the most poignant of all, where Israel, where the writer of Kings is doing a self-assessment, and he's saying, the reason Israel fell and was taken off into captivity was because God judged them. Specifically, God used Babylon to judge them. So it was spiritual warfare, Right? I mean, God was in control of that. And then the third is satanic forces. I mean, this is real, right? I mean, we, we don't always like to talk about it. Luke twenty two thirty one. that's where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Satan is asking to sift you like wheat, right? That Satan was about to launch an attack on Peter, which came just a little bit later when Peter denied Christ. Or Ephesians six twelve, where Paul talks about struggling against this present darkness, I mean, satanic forces are real. Now, going back to the original caveat, what is incredibly discouraging is when someone under the banner of Christianity, and how many televangelists have done this, said, oh, you know that earthquake in Japan? That's God's judgment, right? Or, you know the tsunami that hit Indonesia? That's God's judgment. Uh, that, you know what? Unless God called them to be a prophet... And, and write down part of his canon, which he hasn't asked them to do, I don't really think they should be attributing things that happen in this world to supernatural acts because God doesn't call us to be an arbiter of that. Now, he specifically did that, and it was recorded in the canon of Scripture for our own understanding. But there are other reasons bad things happen, and that's what I want to talk about. That's probably the most difficult of all causes of suffering, which is... A result of man's, as a result of man's original sin. When you're talking about a baby that's born with cancer, or a young parent who dies of some illness, not because they made poor choices, but because of a genetic defect, or a traffic accident that happened because of, a, of something that was not directly related to poor choices, just a horrible accident, Right? Why do those things happen? Those are much harder for us to make sense of than choices and consequences because I can kind of understand that. And I can understand supernatural forces, but I really struggle with this third. The deal is, is we broke the deal, right? When Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose their own way rather than God's way, they sowed the seed of rebellion and we are continuing to reap the corruption of the flesh that comes from that, the corruption of creation. Things don't go the way God originally intended because we broke the deal. 
That's the judgment. That's part of the judgment. And this plays itself out in no, numerous ways. If you just walk through the, the, the second bullet point, the analogy here, look, sin requires judgment, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Avoiding judgment requires salvation. Romans 8.2, lots of other places, but the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Salvation, of course, requires faith. Ephesians 2.8, right? We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ through grace. And faith requires testing, right? Now, because we live in a fallen and broken world, because of original sin, sometimes suffering exists in our lives to test our faith. That's exactly what James is talking about. When he says, consider it pure joy when you fall into all sorts of trials and sufferings because it, the, it, the endurance that it creates in your faith. And in, in, Paul, or in Peter, he talks about the, the preciousness of faith, faith that is tested by trials. So ultimately, we can back into all that and say, our faith must be tested, right? It's one thing to say you all believe those chairs will hold you. Right? You test that faith when you, you didn't even think about it, when you came in here and sat down. Right? You leaned into it. Well, it's one thing to have a said faith, right? I believe, you know, God, I believe Jesus, believe God, believe the Bible. It's another thing to persevere in that faith through a period of testing. And so because of man's original sin, sometimes things in this world happen, happen to test our faith. Does that make sense? Those categories. But again, understand, we're not in a position to understand everything God is doing. And so we don't lay those out. Now, you can look at some, some consequences and go, well, there was a natural choice that led to that. And hey, that's, I, I want to walk with you through that and let's talk about that. But there are also some other things that happen that there's no, you can't really point back to some choice we made, right? But you can point to the fact that it's a part of the judgment since the fall. So... I think the question a lot of us ask is, and a lot of Christians ask is, okay, got all that, but like, what is God's control over this concept of suffering? Like, I understand we live in a fallen and broken world, but, but is it, so what does that mean? Is God in control of suffering? Uh, do, does, does, do things happen independent of his will? Well, let's see what the Bible says. The Bible, in multiple cases, makes it incredibly clear that nothing arises, exists, or happens independently of God's will. Even bad things. Look at Amos 3.6. If an alarm sounds in a city, do, not the, do people not fear? If disaster overtakes a city, is the Lord not responsible? Isaiah 45.7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord. Okay, God makes it really clear in multiple places in Scripture, that nothing happens uh, apart from His will. Now, we struggle with that. And because, look, a lot of bad stuff's happened in this world. There was a Holocaust that killed millions of Jews. Abortions have killed 55, billion, 55 million babies since 1973. Lots of horrible things happen, and we, we have this conception of God, and we just, how can that be, Right? And so one way people try to deal with it is they've come up with this concept, and they don't call it this, but this is what we would call it, is open theism. Which open theism basically says, look, God is all-powerful and all-good, 
But he gave us a good thing, which is the power of free will. And God, therefore, when he gave us this power of free will, in order to honor that power, he had to surrender control over what our decisions might be. So how they sort of view it happening is God gave us the power of free will. Humans make a choice. God has to step in and deal with the mess, right? God's continually reacting to what his creation does. And if you think about that on a, as a, as a, on a human basis, that sort of makes sense, right? Because, look, there is no question God created his beings with the power to choose, That's free will. That's what he gave his creation, right? Now, what is the one thing we as humans can create that has the power to choose? What is the one thing... Does a robot have the power to choose? No. A robot does what the input says. Does a car have the power to choose? No, a car goes where you drive it. What is the one thing we as humans create that has the power to love us or reject us? Children. Right? That's why that metaphor is what God uses to describe his relationship with us. And so this whole concept of open theism can kind of make sense to you because it's kind of how I think of my relationship to my child. Right? I train them. I equip them. I, I send them out. And then they make a decision and I have to react to it. Well, in that piece, that's where the relationship between me and my child breaks down between the relationship of an all-knowing, omnipresent, sovereign God with his creation. Nothing that you do surprises him. He knew you would be here tonight before he ever created the world, if you ascribe to a biblical worldview. Open theism, in its attempt to let God off the hook for all the horrible things we see in the world, does not accurately describe the biblical picture of God. He doesn't ask to be let off the hook. He doesn't ask to be let off the hook when we look at horrible things like the Holocaust. He says, look, I'm in control. Humans are fully accountable for some terrible decisions, but he never, ever asks to be let off the hook. He says, I am in control. Nothing happens independent of my will. Now, if that's true, then, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we know that God is faithful, upright, and holy, but not all that happens is faithful, upright, and holy. We know he doesn't act inconsistently with his character. We know that he does not do evil, right? And I've given you some scripture there that, um, that, that you know, and, and that's just scratches the surface, right? That God is righteous. He does not do evil. But even though God does not act outside of his character, he does permit his creation to commit evil acts which lead to suffering. One of the great pictures in all of Scripture is Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, where God sends Moses to talk to Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And you go tell, Mo, you go tell Pharaoh that, that, that your heart is going to be hardened. You're going to reject my request, and I'm going to do this. I put you in the position as Pharaoh so that, why? I could display my power in all the earth. So I not only put you in position as Pharaoh, I hardened your heart. Why? So I could bring the, what, what is happening right in the middle of this. We, we already talked about it. The supernatural judgment of the ten plagues. Because God was going to demonstrate his power. He was going to call his people out of a nation that was far larger, more powerful than they were. 
And at the end of it, though, is where it sort of swings back. And it's the verse that people don't often read. At the end of that, and, and Moses says, and you still exalt yourself. He's talking about Pharaoh. So we see that Pharaoh was culpable, right, for exalting himself, rejecting God. But we also see that God was totally in control of all that. Now, why did God do that? Well, we just talked about, I mean, he's, he was progressively revealing himself to us and what he was doing with the nation of Israel at that time. But I happen to think, and this is Aaron, not biblical, but I think I can support it biblically. I think one of the other reasons he did it is there might be some Egyptians that we meet in heaven someday because they were like, look, I don't care what Pharaoh's doing. The river just turned to blood. I, I'm following Israel's God. Right? Now, it doesn't talk about that in Scripture, and so I can't prove that to you, but I think that's one thing God may have been doing because he was revealing himself. He's saying, hey, look over here. This, I'm the one that's in charge. Pharaoh is, is my pawn. He does what I'm asking him to. Now, if that's true, well, did God tempt Pharaoh? Did God tempt him in order, did he, did... Is that why Pharaoh committed that specific sin of not following God or or any others? Well, the Bible answers that question in James where he says, Look, if any one of you is tempted, don't blame that on God. You're tempted by your sinful flesh. Now, God will test you, which is a very different thing, to test the purity of your faith. To test your commitment to him is a very different thing than being tempted by the sinfulness of the flesh. Right? That's, that's a problem that originates with us, not with God. That's part of the fall. That's part of the corruption of our flesh, which has led us to walk away from Him. But the point is that God uses evil acts to bring about His will. And that's where it blows our mind. Right? Because it's just, we don't think big enough about God. I mean, we really do think Pharaoh like, was in control and God was like in a chess match with Pharaoh. Yeah, God was in a chess match with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was a pawn, right? I mean, he wasn't playing on the other end of the table. And so God used the evil, the horrible things that Pharaoh did. God used the evil, the atrocities that have happened in all over the world to reveal himself. But that's hard for us to absorb. You know, I, I've given this, uh, I've talked about this in uh, Uganda. We've been multiple times, this church has sent teams to Uganda, Burundi, in support of um, the local church on the ground. And one of the things we do is teach uh, conferences, multiple day conferences, and we kind of walk through some biblical concepts, and one of them is suffering. Now let me tell you, it is um, a humbling thing to stand in front of a bunch of pastors in northern Uganda, where Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army have oppressed them, murdered them, Some of the pastors who were there were kidnapped as child soldiers and escaped, have seen horrible things, some of whom were forced to kill their parents because it was a mind control technique. They were like seven years old, the raiders come into the village, kill your parents, oh, hey, now you're going to be shunned, you need to come join us in in the Lord's Resistance Army that's operating out here in the bush. To stand up and talk to those people about suffering, let me tell you, I mean, I'm not sure I'm equipped I haven't, and, and I don't know what your story is. I'm guessing some of you come here tonight with, with bringing baggage from suffering that I can't wrap my mind around. And all I can say is, man, I'm sorry. And, but you know what? God's in control. And he's doing something with whatever it is you're going through. He's doing something in Uganda. I've seen it. 
I've seen the joy those people have in the midst of evil. I've seen the joy those people have had in the midst of suffering. And it it should shame all of us in this room for what God is doing there. So God does not tempt. He does test. But when, through temptation, people make bad choices, God still uses those evil acts to bring about his ends. And so if that's true, then what, what is God's purpose in suffering? Well, I mean, we already talked about one thing was to test our, is he can use it as an element of testing of our faith, but let's just walk through what the Bible says, right? First of all, we know that everything, both good and bad, exists to reveal the glory of God. That's what he's all about, right? He loves you. But he is passionate about his glory because that is the most valuable thing in the universe because it's the essence of God. Okay, so that's what he's passionate about. Now, God's grace is an attribute of his glory, right? It's one of the things that is his glory, the fact that he had grace on us. God's grace is what led to his own suffering as he sent his son to pay our debts, right? His grace... His glory is, his grace is part of his glory, which made him say, I'm going to send my son to die for you all. And the death of Jesus Christ in suffering is the greatest example of grace and therefore the glory of God. The vicarious, redemptive suffering of Christ. Vicarious because Christ did it for us. Redemptive because sin requires bloodshed. For atonement. That's the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? There had to be the shedding of blood because a righteous God will not unite himself with anything that's less than perfect. And he takes sin very seriously to the point that blood is required to atone for sin. And so Christ redeemed, which if you know redeemed means to purchase something with a view towards setting it free, he redeemed us with his blood through his suffering. Now, a lot of people tend to minimize the suffering of Christ, right? Because they say, okay, yeah, I get it that he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. I get it that he suffered on the cross. But, you know, he knew what the ultimate outcome was going to be, right? Well, look, here's what I know. I've never suffered so much and been in such anguish that I have sweat blood, right? The physical reaction that was going on in Christ's body to what he ultimately knew was that the God was going to have to break fellowship with him for a time because as Christ absorbed sin was a level of suffering that we can't appreciate. The anguish that God the Father went through being separated from his son, casting all the judgment of the world onto his son is a level of suffering I don't think we can appreciate. And I know none of us in this room, or I very much doubt any of us in this room, have had our back torn open with a whip have had nails driven through our wrists and hung on a cross, right? So don't minimize the suffering of Christ. It was real. He was fully human. He, he went through a level of suffering that we can't even imagine. But you know why he did it? Because God had a purpose in it. And let's just talk about, I mean, what God accomplished through his suffering. We can just walk through what the Bible said. Number one, Christ absorbed the wrath of God's righteous nature through suffering. That's what he did, right? That's the only way any of us are saved. When God pours out his wrath and his judgment on sin, his righteous wrath on sin, only those of us who stand behind Christ, who absorb 
who absorbs the, the punishment for us are the only ones who end up being saved. Christ bore our sins and redeemed us through his suffering. He provided us a perfect righteousness through our participation in his sacrifice, his suffering for us. He defeated death by his suffering. He defeated Satan through his death. And ultimately, he brought us into eternal life. Now, in light of those things that God accomplished through his own suffering, we who are children of God, heirs with Christ, right? What does it say in Romans chapter 8, right? That we, we have the spirit of adoption of sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. And that the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But then what does Paul say right at the end? Provided that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. See, Paul took the concept of sharing in Christ's sufferings very seriously. And so what God accomplished through his own suffering, we get an opportunity, if that's the right word, to partake in. And so therein lies the answer of why are not our Christians not protected from persecution and suffering. For those of you who saw, we're here when we, why the shield isn't big enough to protect us from all the arrows of the enemy. Persecution is promised to disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? I mean, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He said that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Suffering has been present from the fall, and the righteous have not been spared. Look, I mean, just go down the list of suffering. David had one of his children rape a sister and ran from one of his son, his son who was trying to usurp his authority. Jeremiah was forced to wander in the exile even though he'd warned the Jews to respond to God. And, and, and he, was, he was forced to live in caves in the New Testament, right? I mean, let's just go to Hebrews where it talks about people being sawed in two and all sorts of horrible things that happened to people because they were believers. I remember when, uh, the, at a time, I was uh, in, in between high school and college, was processing with a friend about going into the, into the mission field, just you know, for a short-term mission, and, and my friend ended up going to China. And my mother, who's, a, who's a, a, a very strong believer, was like, no, you can't do that. Well, why? Well, because they might put you in jail, right? You, you, you know, who knows what could happen to you over there? And I remember thinking, well, you know, what happened? Look at Paul. I mean, it, I mean it, didn't he say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? And, and what she couldn't write, her mind around, and, and she's a believer, right? But was like, well, that suffering, that was for Paul, but not for my son, right? That was supposed to happen back then. You know, let me tell you, suffering is not something that happens just to the super saint, right? It's not something that happens to the full-time missions person. Christ says, if, I mean, in multiple cases, if you love me, you'll follow me. And if you follow me, you'll be subjected to suffering. And it's a misconception of God's purpose in suffering wherein we think, hey, if I can just do well in this whole process of following Christ, I'm not going to suffer. Right? That's not, you can't control God by obedience. It just doesn't happen that way. We'd like to think that. 
And there's an element of truth in the concept of following Christ, acting consistent with biblical wisdom does protect us from suffering in certain instances. But in other instances, it leads us directly into the teeth of it. We know that suffering deepens faith and holiness, even if it's not from persecution, right? Where Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Verses 8 9, he says, Hey, I don't want you to be misinformed, brothers. When we were in Asia, we despaired even to death. Not because they were persecuted necessarily, that, that was part of it, but a lot of bad things were going on. And Paul said, And it was so that we would depend on Christ, not on ourselves. God used that suffering to deepen Paul's faith and holiness. That's what Hebrews 12 talks about, that God disciplines his children. Right? He subjects them to suffering because suffering, it turns out, is one of the greatest antidotes to shallowness there is. Right? A shallowness of faith, an incredible antidote to that is suffering. And, you know, look, Paul's thorn in the flesh, we, which we don't know exactly what it was. We think, based upon correct biblical interpretation, it was some physical malady that Paul prayed about. But God didn't remove it. Why? Because he wanted Paul to see that in his weakness, God's strength was revealed. So he used suffering to make it clear that Paul needed to depend on him. And suffering also, we know, fills up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Now, that verse comes from Colossians 1.24. And, the, and what, let's be clear about what that's talking about. There was nothing lacking in the atoning sufficiency of Christ's suffering. He died once and for all. His death on the cross was atonement that paid for all sin, past, present, and future. When Paul was talking about lacking, is he's talking about there were only, what, at most a thousand people who witnessed Christ on the cross? And so when Christians suffer, we fill up what is lacking. In other words, God uses us as imitators of Christ to show people, hey, there's something different, right? He uses us to talk to the world about himself. That's where we fill up what is lacking because you and I weren't standing there when he died on the cross. But when I see a pastor in Uganda who at gunpoint killed his family, who watched horrible atrocities happen as a child, was a child soldier, was saved out of it, and now is a pastor glorifying God, Wow, that impacts me, right? That, as he processes all the suffering that had gone on in his world, God is using him today to fill up what was lacking in Christ's suffering because he's a picture of Christ. And that is the point of why there is no such thing as pointless suffering, right? How we suffer matters. That's why it is not pointless for a child to be born with cancer. That is why it is not pointless for an innocent victim to be hit by a drunk driver. Nothing is pointless to God. And the second you start saying something is pointless to God, you are putting yourself in the position of understanding what he is doing. Now look, let's understand what God's doing. He's only about doing two things in this world. He's here to redeem the lost and prune his vines. Those are the two things he's doing, right? We're bringing the lost sheep into the fold, and then as we abide in Christ, switching the metaphor, that he's the vine and we are the branches, he uses life, 
He uses circumstances to, circumstances to prune us. Now, when we understand those are the two things God is doing in this world, it changes our perspective on suffering. It changes our perspective on what he might be using evil to do. You know, it's also important just walking back in history to understand why we uh, struggle with this concept. Prior to about 300 AD, if you had asked the church, the, the Acts chapter 2 church that uh, was present after you know, Christ had left the earth, if you asked the early church, are Christians protected from persecution and suffering, they would have laughed at you, right? I mean, just, no, we're not protected. We're being thrown to lions for sport. A lot of Christians in Nero's reign were dipped in oil and used as human torches to light the games. (laughs) No, that's crazy. Christians are not protected from persecution and suffering. So why do we struggle with that concept today? Well, let's walk through church history. In about 300 AD, something really significant happened. There was a guy named Constantine, right? And he was fighting against Maxentius, I think. And he was a Roman general. And he was leading his troops into battle against Maxentius, who was another Roman general. And Constantine saw a cross in the sky, right? And there's two different accounts of it. One, he was asleep and saw the cross. One, he was awake and saw the vision. Did he see a cross? I have no idea. But here's what's important that happened afterwards, right? Is Constantine won the battle. Constantine then adopted Christianity as an official state-sponsored religion. And from there, what was once a remnant of a church that was being oppressed from all sides suddenly became a very popular thing. And for the next 1,700 years, down into the present day, in most places in the world, not all of the world, but Christianity is by and large a state-sponsored religion. Now, what happened because of that? Because part of us would say, well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, getting, getting the state to you know, ascribe to Christian, Christianity is, is a good thing. But here's the thing. Look, I don't know whether Constantine believed Jesus Christ died for his sins. I have no idea. But what I do know is Constantine and a long line of emperors, dictators, presidents, and other people who've followed behind him have figured out that Christianity using the church is a pretty good force for unifying an empire, right? And so it has become a tool of the government. And so what we see ultimately is when Christianity became a state-sponsored religion, the true church, those who believe in Christ, became part of and in mass by a lot of people who paid lip service to being the church, and the church in a, to a degree lost its way. What's fascinating about all this is about 1,200 years after Christians were suffering horrible persecution, we come to the Spanish Inquisition, the 1500s, which what was that? That was the church sawing people in half. Like the paradigm got flipped to where now the church was the dominant culture and it was oppressing people who didn't agree with its worldview. And so we... Stepping into the church in the West, in this Judeo-Christian society that we live in, we've just come to expect that Christians don't suffer. 
right? Generally speaking, we're, we're not going to be ostracized. There is a large population of people in Dallas, Texas, that identify themselves as Christians. And maybe even you get more business because you identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you get a date because you identify yourself as a Christian. But that's all changing, right? I mean, we live in a postmodern, post-Christian world. And what I mean by that is it is no longer true that to identify yourself as a Christian where we live won't lead to suffering. And I think it will get worse. In fact, I don't just think it will get worse. Go read the book of Revelation. It gets worse. It gets a lot worse. Because history is bending in an arc towards the ultimate outcome of where God is bringing the world. And look, Christ says, look, will I even find faith when I return? I mean, that's how bad it's going to be, right? So understand that the church in the West, us, you know, have been able to expend a tremendous amount of resources on entertaining ourselves, turning church into a self-help program, organizing all sorts of good social things, but we, because we've been insulated from persecution. But if you go to places where the church, like China, is suffering persecution, that's a lot more potent church, right? That's, that is, the people who are joining there are doing it at a certain cost. They're not doing because it's culturally acceptable to do. And so... That's one of the reasons I think our theology, we struggle with this concept. We've lived so long in the position of dominant culture as we tend to think if we just do what God says, he's going to take care of everything, right? He's going to make me healthy and wealthy and liked and, you know, life's just going to roll. It's going to be good. But that's not the biblical reality. If that is your reality, awesome. You're still going to suffer certain things in this life, no doubt. But if that's your reality, great. But don't expect that, right? God, that may not be the play that God has called. And as we see, as we move further and further away from America being governed by a Judeo-Christian ethic, you're going to see the church start suffering. Those who really speak truth about the way God designed the world and what his plan for the world is, you're going to see them start to be persecuted. It, it happens now, right? And it's only going to get worse because that's just the way, until Christ returns, that's, what's, that's, that's the way God has organized all this. Now, let's talk about what might be some objections you're going to run into. Or maybe they're your own objections, which is fine too. One thing that people will say is that if our faith is strong enough, then it will cause God to intervene in difficult circumstances. And one of the places they'll go is James 5.15, where James says, Is any one of you sick? If he's sick, he should call the elders of the church, and they should pray for him and anoint him with oil, and he will be healed. Right? Now, that verse, people have tried to do lots of different things with that verse, and I am not qualified, nor is it in the scope of this class, to do an exegetical walk through that verse in the Greek. Nathan much more qualified than I am to do that. But here's what I know. 
The word that's used for heal, sozo, can mean physical healing, and it can mean a spiritual healing, right? It's used both ways in the New Testament. It's used, to, it's, it's used for salvation and it's used for physical healing, right? The word that he happens to use for prayer in that specific verse is a, is a word that's only used two other times in the New Testament, in Acts, and it means like a, a vow, like a fervent vow and wish before the Lord. It's still properly interpreted as prayer. But, you know, if we look at that verse, first of all, understand, if you really were to just take that verse in isolation and say, uh, what does it mean? Well, what's interesting is that verse doesn't even talk about the faith of the person who's suffering or the faith of the person who's sick, right? It's the faith of the elders that would actually heal the person. And so... What I think that verse, when we interpret it through all of Scripture, means is something different than the fact that if your elders are really faithful, you don't need a hospital. Because I I don't think that's what God's saying. Now, as we interpret that verse, just look alongside that. Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, and he's talking about the centurion, he, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd and said, Look, I tell you, not even in Israel I found such faith. Now, that was when the centurion said, look, don't even come to my house. You just say the word and my child will be healed, right? So Jesus said, well, I've not seen such faith like that. And he says, okay, your child's healed. Or look in Matthew 9, 2, where Jesus sees the faith of those bringing a paralytic to him and says, I see their faith. I'm going to heal him. So sometimes in the New Testament, it was the faith of the person who was suffering, Matthew 9, 22, like the woman who had the bleeding syndrome and just touched the hem of his robe and he turned and said, hey daughter, your faith has healed you. And sometimes it was the faith of the people who were bringing someone to Jesus. But the point of it is, is that to take from those specific instances, those specific miracles that God did and extrapolate out that we can control God by our faith is a misunderstanding. Because if that were true, then why couldn't Paul deal with the thorn in his flesh? Right? Paul probably had a better prayer life than any of us, as far as I know. And he prayed three times for God to reveal, to remove this thorn in his flesh, and God said no. There's another, uh, in one of the uh, uh, letters from Paul, he talks about leaving Trophimus sick back in a, in a port city of Miletus. Well, you know, if Paul was the great apostle that he was, why didn't he just heal Trophimus, right? Why didn't he get some oil and just heal him? And the reason is, is because if you look at the Bible in whole, can God heal? Yes. Does God heal? Yes. Can we control God by our faith? No. And I think Jesus points that out in this great hyperbole that he ta- when he's talking to the disciples and he says, look, if you even have the faith of a mustard seed, right, this incredibly small seed, you can go say to that mountain, go throw itself into the ocean, right? Now, does faith really have a size? I don't think so. I think what Jesus was saying was, look, you don't even get how small your faith is. Like, it is so small. I mean, for you, for, you know, it's not as if it's like this spiritual muscle mass, and if you have enough, you can do the bench press, and if you don't, you can't. That's not, that's not it. And that is the danger 
of people who teach that, hey, if you just believe, God's going to do this, right? The thing is, is when we talked about God's purposes on this planet, God's purposes for his people is to call other people into the fold and to prune those who are, and, and sharpen those who are already in the fold. It's not always his will to heal. It's just not. But it is his will that we ask him to do it. Right? That's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God and petitioning God. And there are multiple examples in, in Scripture where we're commanded to pray and ask for him to meet a need, to deal with suffering, to deal with evil. We all ought to be praying for that now. But it's not contingent on your faith what God is going to do, right? The prayer is not to get God to do something. It's to get a hold of God, right? To become more like God. Um, and, and, you know, on this, on this point, you know, Jesus said to the disciples in one place, he said, look, if, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. Well, that, he's not saying, his name is not like abracadabra, right? His name, what he meant was, if you ask things consistent with what I came to this world to do, I will do it because I want to use you for the kingdom, right? Distinguish between the prayers God will always answer and those he will sometimes answer. The prayer he has unfailingly answered for me is when I pray, God, what is it I'm doing that I need to stop doing? Or what is it I need to stop doing that I should start doing? He's answered that prayer. He's answered the prayer of giving me peace amidst difficult circumstances because he promises that. But he hasn't always answered the prayer when I've asked him to deal with a specific issue. And that's because his purposes are so much bigger than mine. He's weaving a tapestry. You know, know, what God's doing here with suffering and evil and sin is we have such a small view, right? Have you ever seen those pictures like in a magazine where they do the, 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 the picture at a really close range and you're supposed to guess what it's a picture of, right? And, you, and a lot of times you can't because you're so zoomed in, you don't see the whole thing that God is doing. But one day, you are going to see what God is doing, right? And it will all make sense. It'll make sense why a baby had to be born with a horrible malady, right? It will make sense. And sometimes it makes sense now, right? I don't know if you all remember when Nick Vucidic came and, and, and spoke at this church, but Nick Vucidic, who was born without arms and legs, not because his mom made poor choices, not because, I mean, there was drugs didn't cause it in the pregnancy or any of those things, not because he made poor choices, but because it's a fallen and broken world and there was some defect in his genetic code and that's what he was born with. No arms and legs. Incredible amount of suffering, right? And Nick, if you hear him talk, says, look, I still pray for God to give me arms and legs miraculously and I keep shoes in my closet in case he just so happens to answer that prayer, right? But then he says, but you know what? If he doesn't, he's already redeemed the suffering because, and, and I can't say it exactly like he is and it certainly would never have the power, but basically he said he, he stands on the road to hell and redirects traffic. He can get in and talk to people we can never get in and talk to. He commands attention, will never command because of the way he lives his life. And God's using him. He's using suffering. He's using brokenness and evil that this evil world we're in. That, that Satan is, is the, is the you know, prince of this world. I mean, he, you know, lots, I mean, don't misunderstand that. 
but he's using it for his purposes, right? Just like he used the evilness and the sinfulness of Jews who crucified Jesus. Look, it wasn't a surprise to, to God that Jesus went on the cross. It wasn't Satan winning, right? It was God allowing those Jews, and it talks about in Acts, that God had ordained it, but those, the people who did it, who crucified Christ, were completely responsible for their actions, right? But God used that evil to ultimately bring about our good. So just understand that a strong faith, a growing faith is a good thing, but you will not have a faith on this planet that allows you to command God to do something consistent with how you think the world should unfold. At best, and what I pray for all of us, is that we have a view of the world that God gives us through faith of what he's doing. Uh, the second point is, you know, the, and, and we've uh, talked a little bit about this, if we live consistent with biblical teaching, God will protect us and respond to our requests, right? We've talked about there are certain requests that he always responds to. It is true. I mean, read Proverbs, right? A lot of what Proverbs talks about is, you know, if you do this, if you live in the way of wisdom, it will go well with you. And that's true, right? If we live consistent with biblical principles, if we live consistent with an understanding that choices and consequences, then yeah, life goes better. You avoid a lot of suffering and pain, but it doesn't mean you're going to be totally insulated from it. And why is that? Well, because God intends for us to have something other than our best life now, right? There's a, there's a, a book that I haven't read, so I'm not chastising it, but written by a, a mega church pastor called Your Best Life Now. And, I, and he may mean something different from that, but it makes a great point that we spend so much time talking to God about improving what's going on right here, about dealing with the suffering, about increasing the size of, shield, of the shield so the arrows in that picture don't hit us. And one of the verses people cite, in fact, I'm going to do a poll here in a second, but it's Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good. And he goes on to talk about all these things. How many of you, that hangs in your house now or did growing up? About a dozen of you. Okay, let's unpack that verse. Who, he's speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, Right? And if you go to the first part of that chapter, what's going on? They're getting carried off into exile. So I don't know if any of you live in exile, but that verse might more appropriately hang in your house if you're exiled in Babylon. Right? Because what God's saying is you're going to be exiled for 70 years. You're going to be torn from your homeland. You're going to be subjected to what the Babylonians want to do to you. But wait, I know the plans I have from you. I'm not going to deal with this suffering right now. In fact, I probably won't even deal with it in your lifetime, right? But you need to go to those cities in Babylon. You need to marry. You need to go on with your life the best you can in light of the suffering because there's a future hope. Because God does not intend for us to have our best life now. Our best life is in eternity. And everything he's doing in this life, the exile for the, for the people of Israel, the fact that we are called aliens and strangers in this world, as Jesus says, how we're to live. Everything he's doing, everything we're subjected to, every evil, every separation that is caused because of our faith in Jesus Christ, he's using to 
our good in eternity. And that's where he intends for us to have our greatest life. You know, uh, I believe that eternity is a great leveling mechanism. And what I mean by that is, first of all, let's just admit, there's not a lot in the Bible about what life in heaven's like. And I know some people have written really long books talking about what we're going to be doing in heaven. And I'm just saying there's a lot in there, and it may be true, but the Bible itself doesn't really tell us that much. It tells us in Psalms chapter 16 that it's pleasures forevermore, right? It tells us that there's in Romans chapter 8 that our present suffering, what Paul says is I don't even consider our present suffering worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So there's, there's something God has for us in heaven, and it's more of him, I know that, but what he's going to use us to do in the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, is we just, we don't know that much, but I'm guessing it's so awesome he can't even tell us, or, you know, we wouldn't even be able to keep our eye on the ball here. But eternity is a great leveling mechanism, and what I mean by that is dogs become heirs. Now, March 7, 27, one of the, maybe the harshest things Jesus said, where the woman at the well is talking to Jesus. She's a Samaritan woman, and she um, asks, asks for Jesus to intervene and deal with suffering. And Jesus says, it is not right to give to dogs what belong to the children. He was saying, it belongs to the children of Israel, the blessing and the promise of the Savior, and you're asking me to give that to dogs, to Gentiles. And what did that woman say? She didn't get offended that Jesus called her a dog. She said, even dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. See, she got it that, look, it wasn't that she didn't need to adjust her status in the world. What it meant was she needed to pursue a knowledge of Christ that would bring her into an eternal relationship because dogs eventually become heirs, right? And so to think that God wants to turn us into something now and deal and, and make life perfect now is to miss what he's doing. He's, he's preparing us to be a co-heir with Christ. But that inheritance is not here, right? Because Jesus says, don't store up treasure here, store it up in heaven. And one of the ways God allows us to store treasures in heaven is he uses suffering to purify our faith. In summary, a reason that Christians suffer is so that we can show the world that we get Jesus Christ and he alone is enough. If the reason people want to come to Christ is because they think their business will get better, is because they think he's better than Obamacare at keeping them healthy, is if it's because they think it will make him popular, then they are coming to Christ in idolatry. Jesus Christ plus anything is idolatry. If the world looks at us and says, I want to go to Watermark because the people who are going there seem to be pretty successful in business, have their stuff together, and everything looks good. Number one, I'd say, you don't know us very well because we don't have our stuff together all the time. Like, we're some broken people. But number two, if that's why you're attracted to us, then you're coming for the wrong reason. Jesus Christ plus anything is idolatry. He is all you get and he is enough. And that is why we suffer. That is why God allows horrible things to happen. That is why some of our dear friends 
whose first child was born at two pounds, and they spent an inordinate amount of time in the, in the ER, and, and just incredible amount of difficulty, and then had two more kids, and then were pregnant with twins again and lost one of those twins, and, and um, the baby that was born has a heart defect that has caused, you know, it, it's been tremendously difficult. Tremendous amount of suffering for a, a, a couple of people who I see following and loving Christ. Why did God do that? Well, he allowed that to happen because it's a broken and fallen world. But he allowed it to happen so that this couple, this family, as they deal with this, point people towards Christ. And I see it happening. The way they are dealing with this, this difficulty, this child that they love who has this, this heart, horrible heart defect, is bringing people to Christ. And so that's what God's doing. That's the redemption that comes in suffering. That's why suffering is not pointless. The second thing is to remember that some aspects of suffering in this life will remain a mystery. Like, I don't know why that didn't happen to us. I don't know why I was born here and have lived, by all accounts, a relatively pain-free life while some other people have been born in other parts of the world and have had to deal with horrible things. I don't know why some of you had an abusive father. I don't know why some of you, you may have come from a broken home. I don't know why you're dealing with an, uh, an illness. I don't know why God's using you. I know what his ultimate purpose is. And if you go look at the book of Psalms, it is chapter after chapter of David crying, God, help me, right? I don't understand why, I'm, why the enemy is attacking me. And you know, the, the, the fact is God doesn't reveal it. He just says, look, you follow me. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is where at the end of the gospel, Jesus is talking to Peter. And he says, Peter, someday you're going to be led to a place you don't want to go. And what he was using that was a, for a metaphor of, hey, you're going to ultimately be crucified. Right? And Peter got it. And Peter pointed to John and said, well, what about him? And what did Jesus say? He said, if it is my will for him to live until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. That's what he said. That, that's the deal. I'm not going to tell you why I'm choosing for you to suffer this horrible death. I'm not telling you that because you don't need to worry about that. You follow me. But in that, understand that you don't have to grin and bear it. Right? That's not what God's calling you to do. Accepting that God allows suffering in this world, accepting that God allows evil in this world and uses it for his own purposes does not mean that you don't cry out to God. Right? David, I mean, that is the book of Psalms. That is the book of Lamentations. Right? The authors of, of <coughs> Scripture called out to God. That is Job. Right? I mean, called out to God and said, man, I don't get this. God, I would really like for you to deal with this. He says, cry out to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Right? Come to me, for my yoke is easy. I mean, he is saying, I want to hear all the things you're dealing with. And frankly, I know about them. But talk to me about them. And so understand that. Understand that don't walk out of this room 
especially if you're a person who, like me, hasn't really suffered that much in this life, and don't go out there with your biblical sword of this PowerPoint or, or you know, walking with these verses and like go to someone who's suffering and really struggling and start stabbing them with it. Like, oh no, here's the truth of God. You shouldn't be praying for that. Just deal with it because this world's not your home, right? That, that's not how Christ lived. That's not really that compelling, Right? Uh, uh, the, uh, I loved what Tommy Nelson when he's here said don't have theological body odor right don't I mean what we say is already offensive enough don't be offensive in the delivery of the message mourn with those who mourn weep with those who weep bear one another's burdens but also understand that there is no ultimate solution to suffering and evil on this side of eternity Understand that we broke the deal and that sin came into the world and when you sow to the seeds of corruption, you reap things that you can't imagine. And so what Adam and Eve did and what we participate in in our own sinfulness leads to things that are beyond our control. And just understand some bad things are going to happen in this world. But Jesus left us in the world and gave us his spirit so that we might overcome the world. And that includes suffering. So with that, we've got 15 minutes left. I would uh, be happy to open it to questions, but I do want to point out to you, on the back, I gave you 25 biblical reasons Christians suffer, which is uh, just pulled from uh, uh, another, a third-party resource. It's really small, so you might need a magnifying glass, or go buy Wilmington's Bible Handbook, and you'll, you can use that yourself. But um, understand this, that last point that I, I left short was, if your life is relatively um, free of suffering right now, don't suffer from the apathy of abundance, right? Don't be apathetic. I will never forget, I, I, I think Blake Holmes would be fine with me using this story, but Blake Holmes, our, our quipping pastor here, um, and I were having lunch talking about apologetics probably seven years ago. And we were just talking about, I don't even remember how we got on the topic, but we just said, man, I said, look, there's just not a whole lot bad going on in my life right now. And I read all this stuff that that Christians are supposed to suffer, and and he said, yeah, man, we just need to pray we don't suffer from the apathy of abundance. And, you know, in less than six months later was when his son, Gage, uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. And they spent years going through some intense suffering with his son. He's talked about it from from the front. And he said... Look, the cancer ward at Children's Hospital is not the place to figure out your theology. You figure out your theology now so that when you're in the cancer ward at Children's Hospital, you can be salt and light. And so that's the, that's the challenge for those of us here who aren't really suffering right now, right? Is be ready. Be ready to speak truth to those who are. Be ready to love them and be ready in your own life for what God may allow to happen in order to make you more like his son. So with that, I'd love to open it uh, up to any questions. You got one in the back. See, it's Wilming. If you look, it's Wilmington's book of Bible lists. But I can try to send it. I'll try to send it to Angie in a bigger format, and maybe she can send it out. Is there anybody in here that's not getting the emails that the equipping coordinator is sending out, Angie Mosier? Uh, basically, if you're not, just make sure that sheet out there has your email address on it, and we'll get you on the list. 
Any other questions that you guys have for Aaron? Now's the time to talk. Yes, sir. I've got one. Um, why Hang on. We're, we're recording this, so I'm going to give you the mic. Why did uh, God in the first place create something that he knew would fail? Mm. Like, why did he create? Yeah. Great. Why did God create something that he knew would fail? Right? And, and so in that, like, let's just walk through the, the, the philosophical analogy there. Or, or, so if God is all good, then he can't create something evil, right? So he created creatures who he gave the good gift of free will, right? And those creatures, starting not with humans, but starting with Lucifer, an angel, used that free will in a way that led to the rejection of God. And all this happened, right? The question is, why would he do that? And the answer is, we don't know, right? Martin Luther said, if the world treated me the way it's treated God, I would have kicked the thing to pieces long ago. So why hasn't God kicked this thing to pieces? Or why didn't God create us in a way that we wouldn't sin? The answer is, we don't know. But what we do know is it must have been worth it to God, And if you're a parent, you can kind of see a picture of this. Like, why did I create a child that I knew would throw up on me? Why did I create a child that I knew would keep me up at night? Why did I create a child who says, I don't like you very much right now, right? Which is horribly painful to a parent because I could be doing a lot of other things than trying to help my son with homework, right? And, And so why did I do that? Because in the moments when my son is like, I love you, dad, can I do what you did? You know, I want to follow you in this. Dad, let's pray together. Dad, let's go do this together. Or when my daughters come up and hug my neck, it's worth it to me. And so I, don't, I can't put that on God, but I think the love relationship that comes when the, creatures, when the creation responds to the creator is worth it to God to the point that he was willing to send his son to die for us. And that's as good as an answer as I can give you. There's another, um, let me add one little caveat to that, because I heard a guy say uh, something about this that was really savvy, I thought. Really, when we're, when we're wishing away kind of the evil that God, or the evil that God has allowed to take place in the world, then um, we, a lot of times we think of that as something that's uh, outside of ourselves. And so, really, and I've, I've talked to atheists and agnostics about this a, a lot, where I'm just like, hey, what you're wishing for is to wish away your own existence. And so it, it really becomes a question of should I exist or not? And, and uh, you can tackle that on a, on a different realm. Yeah, a couple of questions back there. But to add on to what Nathan just said, we, it's easy for me to pray with God to deal with evil in the world. And I want him to deal with that swiftly and severely. But I don't want him to deal with my evil so yeah. swiftly and severely, right? I want him to extend me a little grace, right? So it's easy to pray about what I see other people doing. Yeah. My question isn't really very deep, but you were uh, tagging on the Lucifer story. Mm-hmm. Where can I find that in the Bible? Sure. Well, uh, there's, there's a couple places, but in Ezekiel, when it talks about uh, the morning star rejecting God, uh, there's talking about where Jesus talks about seeing Satan cast out of heaven. Um, uh, you can read about it there. Nathan, you can add on to this if you can think of some other places. But it's in the narrative in multiple places where Lucifer, who was the most beautiful of creation, rejected God because he wanted to put himself in the place of God. And um, 
and, and those are two places, uh, Ezekiel, and then Jesus talks about seeing him cast out of, of heaven like lightning, but I'm not, I apologize, dialing up the verse right now, but um, it's in there, and, and perhaps we can send that out. Any other questions? Yeah, Nathan, you got one over here on the, on the side. Hang on, hang on. Repeat, repeat again. Oh, go ahead. Go, can you ask it into the mic? You can, you can talk. So did God create angels to have free will also? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the other question I had was, can you explain what you mean by God will test you but not tempt you? What, give me sure. some examples of okay. testing versus tempting. If I am struggling with a decision, uh, let me try to think of a good example, but if I am tempted to abuse alcohol, right? That temptation to do that is coming from my flesh, my flesh's desire to escape reality, right? That is not coming from God to figure out whether I love him. On the other hand, if as a result of alcohol being used by another person, something comes into my life, some sort of pain, whether it's a broken relationship, an injury, any type of thing you want to come up with, God can use that circumstance to test my faith. Okay? But when God was... God is never trying to tempt us to reject Him. The temptation to reject God comes from our own fallenness and brokenness. God allows things to happen to us that test whether we love Him or whether we just love the gifts He gives us. Does that make sense? The difference between temptation and test? Yeah, you got a question over there, Nathan. Yeah, hang on. So uh, just to follow up on that too, the book of James is five chapters long and it explains the difference between testing and tempting in that book. So it might be a good reference for you. Thank you. Um, We were talking about controlling God. I understand and I agree totally we cannot control God. I struggle with a couple of verses in the Bible because I don't understand them. They almost sound to me like Control verses. Can you give an example? I know I'm totally off. No, no, no. They're the bind and loosing verses. Where you bind, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on on earth earth. will be loose in heaven. That sounds like a control or or that it, it kind of smacks of control to me. Right. And he's talking to Peter, who he's saying, you know, on this rock I'll establish my church. Now, the rock. That he's talking about himself right there, but he's talking to Peter. And what I think in that picture, we know this. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you, right? And so if by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am binding the devil's action in my life. I'm not controlling Satan, but if I am, if I am rejecting Satan, if I am resisting Satan by the power of God then he is bound. He, God has overcome and he must flee from me. Satan. Correct, Satan. And, 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 you know, and, and then when what, what he's also talking about there, what you loose on earth and or what you loose in heaven, um, 
you know, you, you can, people come down in different contexts on that. But what he wasn't saying in, in, in that was that you're walking around with a magic wand and you're zapping people with spiritual lightning, right? That's not what he did. He said, though, that whatever you ask in my name, I, I will do it, right? And so if you ask me because you want to identify with me, Lord, make me more like Christ, make me more like you, he will do it. You may not like what he means he uses to do it, right? Which is if you heard uh, Todd say, Lord, if you have to paralyze me all the way to the ears to get me to respond to you, please do it, right? And what he was saying there is if you need to take away all these things that are distracting me from following you, do it because I know it's worth it. So, um, you know, Nathan, I don't know if you want to add anything on yeah. that specific verse, but yeah, go it's, ahead. Yeah, it's a, um, so it's Matthew chapter 16, and uh, t- this, is, this is interesting because it's where the languages come in. I'm sorry, who asked the question? Yeah, um, this is where the languages come in. It's actually, when you translate it directly, and, and some, some versions say whatever you bind um, will be bound in heaven, but, but the Greek there actually says whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven, which goes directly into correlation with what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, I came to the earth to bring about the kingdom program that God the Father has sent me here to do. Things have already been bound and loosed in heaven that I am now binding and loosing on earth, and I'm giving you that same authority. Does that make sense? All right. Bam. Yeah, you got one there and then down here. Who? Right here. All right, send it. Uh, you spoke briefly about like supernatural um, or like spiritual warfare. And I was wondering if you have any like brief like because when do you know if it's like a spiritual warfare or supernatural thing? Like you said, people try to attribute something like this is be- you brought this on be- and God's punishing you or demonic or satanic or whatever are there any like signs of that or places in scripture because I'm, I'm looking at the ones you put here but places where we can kind of see signs of actual spiritual warfare or if we know if that's it it's always spiritual warfare the enemy hates you satan hates you he prowls around like a lion looking to devour you okay so a lot of things are happening in the world that i think if we saw we would be terrified when um uh, Elijah prays that his servant could see. You know, the the, the battle was coming, and his, he prayed that his servant could see. And all of a sudden, God opened his eyes to see all these spiritual these angels who were in the hills ready to come do battle. Like that stuff's happening, right? There is spiritual warfare going on all the time. And so when I when we walk through those different things, I mean, that's why I'm saying there's multiple causes to certain to to any effect, and spiritual warfare is happening. You know, we're not able to identify the prince of Persia like Paul does. And we're not, you know, knowing like Jesus did that Satan was about to test Peter, sift him like wheat. You know, we don't have that insight. We don't stand uh, in, in the throne room of heaven and watch Satan have a discourse with God as the accuser, which is what Satan stands for. That, hey, Job only loves you because you've given him everything he's wanted. Like we don't have, we don't know how that's all happening, but it is happening. And so I would just tell you, it's always spiritual warfare. And don't get caught up on demonic, non-demonic. Look, it's happening. There are, demons are happening. Satan is here. Christ came to save you. But, but a war's 
always going on. I think we had one down here. Here we go. Hey, real quick, uh, the Satan verses of Satan falling, Lucifer is Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Okay, my, uh, my question is kind of a piggyback off of an earlier question. Uh, if angel, if uh, angels do have free will, then really what was the point of creating us? If he could find, I guess, what he's looking for, you know, somebody having the free will to worship him and... and, and and that relationship through angels, then why would he create us? Mm, great question. Why, if angels are these awesome beings that have some powers that you and I don't have, and they have free will, therefore they can respond to God in love, then why create us? Great question. Let's even twist that a little bit further. Did you know that Paul says, and I'm trying to dial up where the verse is, that we, the angels, will serve us in eternity. We, what does it say? Either we will judge the angels or... or um, it says the angels will serve us, and it'll come to me in a minute. Why? I have no idea why God would love me, broken man that I am, who doesn't so often does not walk according to the way he's called me to, but not only did he sit, find it worthy to create me, and you could ask the question, why create anybody, right, angels or humans? Again, I go back to it must be worth it to him. And oh, go you you like act like you want to. I guess I kind of got a two part question here. So it which ties into the why does God allow you know evil to happen? But if okay, so if He created us, I guess for the purpose of worshiping Him in that relationship, if that's our sole purpose, really is why He created us. Then and this question may even come off blasphemous. It's just really out of curiosity. I'm I don't know. Um, but why would He? If he created us for the sole purpose of worshiping him, I mean, why? It's, it's, it's kind of selfish, for one. So then, we, when bad things happen to us, we say, "Oh, well, he, you know, he blessed us with this life. He blessed it." But if the ultimate reason we're here is to worship him, then he's not really doing us a favor. You, you understand what I'm saying? I think I do, but let me turn that on its head. Okay, the reason that. You said if the only reason he created us was to worship him, it almost sounds like God is selfish and a sycophant and he just wants us. No, the reason we were created to worship God is because that's the only place life is. There isn't life anywhere else. He, his glory is so amazing that those who've seen it, their face shone, right? Moses' face was shining, literally radiating because he was exposed to a little piece of God. In Job, it talks about all we've seen of God is the hem of his robe, right? And when we talk about the beings that uh, when Jesus, when the transfiguration happened in the garden, the humans who were standing there watching that fell on their face because the awesomeness of just the little bit of glory that those beings had that came as a result of their fellowship with God was so amazing. So it's not because God's a sycophant. It's because he's the greatest thing going in the universe, and he created us to share that with us. And we keep running over here, and he keeps saying, hey, come back. This is the best thing going. I got the candy jar, and you keep going over there. It's like what C.S. Lewis says that, you know, we, 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 accept, we satisfy ourselves with mud pies, and, and, and we can't imagine what it's like to have a holiday by the sea. Like God's offering us something so much more than we're partaking in. And so it's not because he needs us. It's because he loves us.
Well, okay, but there are angels abide in the presence of God, right? Those who did not reject him and follow. I didn't say they were his children. I said they were his creation. Got it. Sure. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they, meaning the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Correct. So I said Paul said it, I was wrong. It's in Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but he was inspired by the same Holy Spirit that, that, that said Paul. I think, I'm pretty sure. No, I, I know he was. So, um, yeah, sorry. It wasn't Paul. It's in Hebrews. Well, hey, guys, we want to respect your time. It's a little after 8.30, so it's time to stop. If you do have more questions, we'll hang out down here afterwards and love to tackle those. Um, remember, if, you, if, you, if you're wrestling and you do have questions or you have friends who are wrestling and have questions, come see us on Monday night at, in the South Community Room for great questions. Other than that, see you all next week.